got your panties in and not all of that. Oh, bottle of water. You know I'm going to keep that, right? Impossibly. Ready? What do you mean, ready? We're already rolling. Don't do that. All right, come on. What have you been... Hey, Parth, uh, we, have po- we have a podcast. What have you been we eating? We do. What have you been eating? Trentster. Thanks for asking. I got back home from TCNJ visiting get friend of the show, previous guest of the show, Sophia Alexis, Yeah. for the weekend. Um, Included on the Gone Girl episode, ladies and gents. Indeed. Yeah, go check that out. Yeah, she gave it two out of ten. Go find out why. <laughs> yeah, but then it was just me and my housemate Claire... A uh, friend of both of ours. I saw Claire at Candyman last night. Yeah, he went. He went and saw the film in theaters, and by coincidence, they ran into each other. What are the odds? Are you, Are you cinema? I remembered the student discount being five dollars, and then I go there, yeah. and it's eight, and it's eight dollars. That's bullshit, <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. Anyways, it's just Claire and I in the house, and we're like, "Damn, my other housemate Chloe does most of the cooking. I guess we'll just make a quesadilla Una que for each of us." Don't get the idea. Yeah. And then that wasn't enough for me. Was it je- was it just un quesadilla con queso or was there more? No, we we, saut- we sauteed some peppers. Uh okay. Yeah, and just put them in. Uh-huh. And then how did you what happened next if that wasn't enough? We heated up some chicken nuggets. Oh, cool. Um are you more of a are you chicken nugget or you chicken tender guy? Like what in what shape do you prefer your chicken? Chicken wing? A chicken sandwich? I have chicken nuggets the most between chicken nuggets and tenders. So I guess I, ch- I prefer that. Mm. I feel like chicken nuggets are probably the least percent chicken in terms of as far as chicken products go. 100%. Cool. Anyways, Trent, um not like I saw you eat this or anything, but like what did you did you by chance were you having a lollipop? Yeah, it was one. It was a purple one from TD Bank. Um, I went in there the other day and I said, "Can I, you know, oh, I did my financial stuff and then I said, can I have as many purple lollipops as you're willing to give me? And because I don't like the green ones and those are their company colors. And so he gave me a handful. And I don't really like the lollipops. It was just, you know, a thing to do. And then you said, you have to eat something that's worth talking about. Yeah, because so, Trent said... I haven't really eaten anything. Can I talk about what I'm going to eat? And I said, no, I respect the format of the show. Uh, I generally respect the show more than you do, Trent. You you idiot bastard child. Uh, go eat something right now. Fuck face. I said all of those words. Well, you saying fuck face reminds me of something. It reminds me of Two-Face. And if you... Oh, wow, Trent, that was... I got it. <laughs> Thanks. Good transition. Right. You said you were going to talk about this. I didn't know how you were going to transition into it, and you, and you did it did it beautifully. Stick with me. There was recently a poll conducted on our Instagram page, and it featured a photo of me, and what did it say, and what was the result of this um, of this experiment? Well, Trent, while we were recording our kid detective discussion, uh. For, made me wait for like five minutes while he adjusted the lighting and everything and his face placement because there was like a high key lighting with my desk lamp and it only hit half my face and then i could if he put his hand up to his face it made me look like harvey two-faced Dent. no 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 it put half of your face in shadow and then you asked me hey parth do i look like two-face to which i replied not really. I mean, like, half your face is in shadow, so, like, I guess you look like Two-Face in that one half of your face looks different. And you said, 
no, I think I look like Two-Face. So I put it up to the Instagram to see how people would react, and then I put a poll up, and it turns out. And then Trent asked me, wow, isn't it kind of fucked up that one-third? Because 67% of people said that I did indeed look like Two-Face, and I was upset about the 33% of people who said uh, and voted that I didn't look like Two-Face. But who was was the most notable person who um, validated... Uh, my appearance as Two Face. Okay, so just before recording, all right, when we get onto the <laughs> I lo- laptops, I learned a very important piece of information. So I I say to Trent, I don't think you look like Two Face, and he said, but you <laughs> voted yes on the poll, and I said, yeah, that was just to stroke your ego. Uh-huh. But I also said it also doesn't matter what I think because somebody much more important said that you do look like Two Face, <laughs> and who was it? No other person other than assistant editor of The Dark Knight, John Lee. So if anyone is in a position to tell me whether or not I look like Two-Face, I think he just stated his case. And um, if that's not a way to go into the opening jingle, I don't know it is. Yeah, let's, let's cue the intro, shall we? Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week we have costume designer for Spike Jones's film, her, Casey Storm. Trent, tell me, was Casey Storm a delightful gentleman? Yeah, what a nice man and um, an insightful guest and... A swell interview overall. And he's worked on so many movies that I really like and respect. And am I crazy or did he tell a good David Fincher story just somewhere in the middle of this interview? Because David Fincher stories are like catnip for Parth and Trent, Mm -hmm. the host of the show, you and I. Yes. Pretty early on, we uh, get some David Fincher content. He talks about his process in uh, the costume department designing costumes for Zodiac, which he describes as the most fulfilling uh, movie of his career as a costume designer. Isn't it funny how the show is kind of just you asking, have you met Tom Cruise, and me asking, have you met David Fincher? It, it certainly seems that way. You want to hear something funny? When I was in L.A., I literally straight from the airport, we went to... Uh, like the uh, the TCL Chinese Theater and right across, and but nothing good was playing. So we didn't see a film there. Uh, the options were um, Free free Guy. Is that the name? Yeah, I saw that at a drive-in. It was all right. And the uh, option two was Reminiscence, which I believe Hugh Jackman is in, and it looks really bad. He is, and it's it's written and directed by Jonathan Nolan's wife. But the interesting part of the story is, since that was a fat L... The the we went across the street and ate at Baja Fresh, and there were two like filmy looking dudes eating at the table across from us, and we started chatting. And funny enough, he'd worked on. I asked him, "Oh, have you worked on? Have you met David Fincher?" And he said, "Yeah, I w- I worked on Fight Club." And I said, "What are the odds that we met in Baja Fresh?" Indeed. Do you, wait, Parth. I don't mean to be crazy, but it's like 
like all everyone we interview has met Tom Cruise. So does that mean if we try really hard, we can meet Tom Cruise? More importantly, can you meet Tom Cruise? And not everyone has met Tom Cruise, but a good a good solid amount. I'm I'm hoping it leads to an eventual meetup, potentially an interview on craft services. Who knows? Come on. This has Tom Cruise ever been on a podcast? Uh no, not really. I mean, some he's been on some interviews that have been turned into podcasts but he's not really a podcast guy like a a plus listers are like above the medium is that crazy anyways uh speaking of a plus our guest was an a plus casey storm yeah wait you wanna i don't want to give away the best part you want to tease the shirt thing oh yeah um i feel like this is an engaging fun fact that might just get the listener to listen yeah, uh, you get to hear how, you know, some of Casey Storm's apparel may have made it into the film quite prominently. Yes, if you refer to the poster, uh, yeah. that might be a hint as to what we're talking about. What, what instead, you guys should just uh, continue listening. You've come, you've been, you've been nice enough to come this far, so just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, stick around. How long is this bad boy? How long should I ask them to stick around for? Uh, I believe the interview is about forty minutes long. Uh, so it's not. It's it's nice, nice length. I was just gonna say that's like ideal length. Like we treat the fans at home like so freaking good. And we're about to treat you even better with the following interview. Shall we cut into it, Trent? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start the interview. Cue the film projector. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Casey Storm. He's been the costume designer for such movies as Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Zodiac, and our film for today, Spike Jones's Her. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. So just to start off, uh, what was your relationship with film uh, at a young age? Well, uh, I grew up in L.A., and I grew up, uh, my dad was a sitcom director. He uh he directed, uh, well, before he was a sitcom director, he was a stand-up comic and worked uh, uh, a bunch with Woody Allen and became sort of a right-hand man to Woody Allen. And then that started his movement into becoming a TV director. Um, and he started doing shows like Rhoda and Taxi and Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy. Uh, Mork and Mindy started happening, I guess, when I was like three or four. So I grew up on the sets of a lot of really great sitcoms. So that was my first experience with any kind of film was sort of just following my dad around and hanging out on these incredible sitcom sets. And then were you into film as a kid? Like what was your first taste with trying to make something yourself or you know gravitating into costuming yeah i was um well the costume thing is real separate but um as far as filmmaking yeah i mean we had a video camera when i was a kid and uh we would con we were constantly making home videos uh writing scripts and making little movies at home and then when i went to uh high school or junior high school went to a school called crossroads which is sort of a famous school out here in Santa Monica and had this incredible film program by a guy from AFI, Jim Hosney started this film program. So it was like, as, as 12 year olds, we were being taught like Godard and, you know, mm. stuff that mm. seems kind of bananas for 12 years, 
12 year old to be learning, but uh, he was like real, like punk rock, progressive filmmaking guy and influenced like so many people who are now out in the world making projects. But the stuff that I had done before I got to that school, just as like a curious kid running around with friends, making films, we started to take a little bit more seriously at Crossroads and we all started working on each other's projects and making films at that point. And then did you end up at some sort of college film school situation or? So I went originally I went to school at a a school called Oberlin College in Ohio. um, And I spent one semester there, which was kind of the worst semester ever in like the worst four months of my life and realized what a mistake it was that I'd gone from Los Angeles to Ohio. Yeah, so not fun. Um, My cousin went there and she kind of duped me into going there and then. I quickly came home and I went when I came home, I went to USC, but I didn't go into the film program there. I just went into communications and took some film classes, but more just use it as a place where I could study all anything that I was interested in. So I was taking courses in all kinds of different things. But at some point when I was there, I guess by my third or maybe even my, you know, it must have been my fourth year there, my last year at USC. Uh, I met Spike Jones, and uh, shortly within like a, a month of hanging out with Spike, we just became friends. And Spike asked me to help him out with clothes on a job, and then that job uh, wound up being the Beastie Boys sabotage video. And then that video was nominated for all kinds of stuff, and I was nominated for all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I was just a costume designer, and that was just the beginning of my career. So you moved from then the Beastie Boys to, I believe, was Being John Malkovich the first movie you did costume design for? Yeah, like we, we had started, really, we all kind of started uh, doing music videos. And then a lot of us sort of segued from music video into commercials. And then uh, some of us segued from commercials into features. And so Spike's being John Malkovich was was the first feature for a lot of the crew on that and Spike and me. So did you have a background in clothes or was this just a random thing that you were assigned to and then ran with for 10 to 15 years? It was a random thing that I was assigned to. Um, Spike has an incredible ability to sort of uh, decide what somebody will be or what they're capable of and can really see it in them. And yeah, I, I loved clothes from an early age. I always kind of dressed wild and loved shopping for weird stuff and vintage and was kind of obsessed with clothes and Spike knew that about me and um, I think just decided that I'd be a good match for that department and just threw me on the beast and also I was a huge Beastie Boys fan so Mm -hmm. it kind of made sense to just put me on that and who isn't um, yeah and then uh, you know and there was no money and since I was a college kid at the time I didn't need any money like I think he told me that he had $300 to pay me and I was like wow it's amazing $300 like I was so stoked on that and then um, yeah it was it, it just sort of took over and became my life for however many years I wound up staying on doing costume but 20 something years. Uh, another music video that I saw you credited on and on IMDb, you're actually credited as an actor as uh, the the Fonz's double. But on, oh, yeah. the, on the Weezer Buddy Holly music video, I love Weezer. And then I when I'd seen that music video many times. So when I saw that, I was very curious. And clearly Spike Jones directed that. But um, that was just an, another similar to the BC Boys job. 
Um, yeah, that was that was an early job too, and then and these were all such low budget jobs that kind of like we were all doing a lot of different things. Like I would wind up doing some casting and sometimes some some of the art direction too mm-hmm. on some of that stuff. And on that one in particular, um, I think that uh, I was kind of a wild dancer, and I was the only mm-hmm. one who could pull off that weird Russian dance yeah. that the Fonz does. So anytime you see the Fonz, not from the front, it's me yes. as the Fonz. That's awesome. And Spike's in it too. I think Spike is Richie Cunningham a couple times in that. So, uh, I mean, what's it like being on a Spike Jones set? He seems kind of like a chill dude, but, you know, we don't know. It's, um, you I mean, us. you know, the nice thing about that film family is it's exactly that. Like, you know, you know, we actually all hung out last night and uh, last night at a, at a little gathering that I was at is like, um, it was at uh, the house of, a guy who edited most of those early projects, Eric Zimbrennan, who passed away actually. And it was at his wife's house. And at this party last night, like Lance Accord was there. Spike was there. uh, Catherine Keener was there. um, KK Barrett, who does production design on those films was there. So like the, the, the people that work on those projects were a family and we've all been together like pretty much since the beginning. I think Vince Landay was there. Vince has produced, was probably the first one on, was probably around maybe a year before I came on and sabotage. And then I was the next one on. And then Lance Accord came on after that. And then KK came on after that. So like his films, you know, and, and all those projects were really just super fun and comfortable and like never felt like the pressure of like having to create something like we were just sort of organically making things. And like, maybe that pressure increased a little bit as the films got a little bit more intense and like studios got involved, but um, spike sets are, you know, they did evolve over time and became different based on whatever project we were doing. But again, it was still like, was in the context of a really tight knit group of friends and a family. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of faith and a lot of trust. And, you know, with that comes like a lot of collaboration that I think is is not necessarily true on a lot of other sets. Like people kind of stay in their own departments and don't really drift too much. Whereas we just kind of are like, you know, brothers and we're all just like digging into each other's business and often fighting and like, you know, not in any bad way, just to just to make sure that we're all keeping each other honest to make a, the best product that we can be making. So going through your IMDb, most of the major motion pictures are Spike, are Spike Jones, and then the one major deviation is Dave Fincher's Zodiac, which is uh, like a very big motion, a, a very big production. I was wondering how you got involved with that. Well, Spike started at Satellite and Propaganda, which was a production company that kind of uh, some of the most incredible artists came out of that place, and Fincher. Uh, I think Fincher is one of the original owners and came out of that place. And, um, you know, like artist Doug Aiken came out of that place. Um, Mark Romanek, who's like rules the world of commercials, is, came out of that place. So it was a re- just like a breeding ground for kind of the smartest, most incredible people. And when I started hanging out with Spike, I would just go to Propaganda and Satellite and just hang out in the alley there where like people would take breaks and smoke cigarettes and even if I wasn't on a job, I would just sit in the alley because I really loved everyone who was there. They became my friends. And inevitably, somebody would be walking by and would be like, hey, what are you up to? Are you working right now? I'd be like, no, I'm just here. And they'd be like, oh, you should do this job with me. So by nature of that, I wound up working on 
jobs with Mark Romanek and a job with maybe a job or two with Fincher. And then uh, when it came time <clears throat> for those guys to go into features, um, Fincher had done a few films, but we started working. He asked me to do Lords of Dogtown. There was a brief mm. period where he was directing Lords of Dogtown. And so uh, he brought me on to do that. So I spent. I think he like left Mission years. Impossible 3 to do that. I didn't know that, but that sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, I think I spent two or three months with Fincher working on Lords of Dogtown, researching, just prepping. And then when he left it, I I didn't want to stay on it either. So, you know, I was only there because of him. So I left. And then uh, quickly after that, Zodiac came up. And uh, so he asked me to do that. And yeah, for me, it just felt like kind of a very natural step. I was working already on a feature with Dave and loved working with him so much and just love him as a person so much. And also that period is the period, you know, I was born in 72. So, so capturing like, you know, first the late sixties and then all the stuff in the seventies for me was such an incredible opportunity. And like, you know, not only to do it, but to do it on with a budget that scale. Like I think at that point, my biggest budget on any film had been like maybe a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, when we submitted our budget on Zodiac, which was like, I couldn't even believe I was turning in a piece of paper that had this number on it, but it was $1.4 million. And I just felt like there's no way they're going to approve this. Like, this is absurd that I'm even asking for this. And I remember, um, the producer Sion saying to me, like, does, is, does this cover everything? Like, is everything included in this budget? Like, if anything is in the script, it's in this budget. And I was like, yeah, that's like, that's everything. And she was just like, okay, you got it. And so that was the budget. But then what it also meant is like, you didn't have any excuse not to right. do anything properly because they gave you what you asked for. So like you were working under that pressure the entire time where you never had an out, like I didn't have enough time. I didn't have a big enough crew. Like I didn't know it was going to be this. Like you were, you know, you always say it's like they give you enough enough rope to hang yourself with. It's kind of mm -hmm. that style is Fincher style. When, when you work with someone like David Fincher, I mean, obviously you, like you knew him and whatever. So it was kind of a, a natural stepping off point, but he seems very specific. I mean, he's notoriously very, very exacting and specific. Uh, was that, is that harder to work within those terms or, and also when working on something with a bigger budget, is that other than handing in the the paper with the money, the 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 amount on it, is actual the actual working process is that any different the higher you go in budget? I think so. I mean, you know, with him, I felt such a responsibility to his vision, and so yes, like how particular he is impacts everything. Like you know, there's there's a there's a scene where they go to the premiere of Dirty Harry in Zodiac, and I think mm -hmm. there's 600 extras in that, and I'm anybody else's movie i would just like tell people to dress tell the extras to like dress themselves on the bottom half and bring a white shirt and i'll take care of the period tie and hats and coats but on a fincher film it's like everyone's socks and shoes because you just never know who might who he might feature somewhere or want to have them so we just made sure that every single person that appeared in that film anywhere we were dressing from head to toe and then you know, as far as how particularly is, um, I can tell you one story that's a good one that kind of sums it all up Please. for me. And that, and this is also kind of 
why at the end of the day you will work this hard for him is that like being that particular and it's never in the vein of just kind of like being a dick or just like saying something just to say something like it's always to make the end product just better and the example i have is um we're trying our best on zodiac to really make everything as real as possible and doing as much research as we could to try and figure out you know who all the people in this film really were and like for me what they dressed like which meant like contacting family members and just gathering as much photo information and stories as we could on all the characters and um there's there's only one scene in the film where you see zodiac in the zodiac hood and uh Brian Hartnell, who was stabbed by the Zodiac when he was wearing the hood, is a survivor. And he was also around to help us out and be sort of a technical consultant on the film. So I got to speak to Brian quite a bit. And like I got to ask him what he was wearing that day. And he had really good memory. He was studying to be a law student. So he was like mentally taking notes of everything he could while this crime was happening. And so the description of the Zodiac's hood which Robert Graysmith sketches out um, a drawing of uh, was with Brian Hartnell's description. And what he said to me was that he remembered it being a square hood. He felt like it was made of like a woven textured fabric. And one of the details that he remembered really well was that the Zodiac was wearing eyeglasses with clip on sunglasses and the, Clip, the the hole that the the eye hole that he had cut into the mask was uh, small enough that the top part of the fabric got clipped between the glasses on the top and it got clipped in the bottom. So I kind of we knew from some other details that like if they were if they were um, aviators like he said they were then they were probably military issue. And at the time there was only one military issued glass uh, eyeglass aviator that had a clip on so we knew Mm -hmm. pretty much for a fact what glasses zodiac was wearing so i knew that and we got those there's a guy uh in pasadena named russ who had a place called old focals who knew everything about glasses and he found us like the exact glasses the clip-ons everything so when i had those i was able to determine how big the eye hole would be on the zodiac hood because i knew from brian hardnell that it had gotten clipped on the top and bottom so it had to be a certain size so when i went to show fincher like some mock-ups of the zodiac hood i had like five different mock-ups some different fabrics like somewhere the zodiac symbol was hand drawn somewhere it was put on the fabric and then a few different eye holes and he was like well which one is the real one and i was like well here's what i know about the size of the eye hole and because of that like it has to be this size and he's like okay he's like so then let's do that one and i was like okay great he goes but the only problem is I really want to see part of the skin of the actor through the eye hole. And if we make the eye hole that small, all you'll see is the glasses. And I was like, right. But from what Brian says, like, that's the accurate one. We're trying our best to be accurate everywhere. And he's like, I know. He goes, I want it to be accurate, but I also really want to see just a little bit of the skin of the person underneath. I think it's just something personal. It'll be more intimidating. Like, there's something to it. And I was like, and we had had these battles all along and always it had fallen on the side of being accurate was more important than whatever story was trying to be told. So on this one, he said to me, like, how thick is that fabric that you're using? And I was like, well, it's like, it's a pretty wide weave. And he said, so like, if you took out one strand 
of fabric, would that open it up at all? And I was like, if I took out one strand of fabric, it would open it up like a 16th of an inch, maybe. And he was like, take out one strand of fabric. (laughs) So we went back and we literally took out one strand of fabric. And I kid you not, like the guy puts it on and it was like just wide enough that you could see just the tiniest glimpse of a piece of skin in there and it accomplished everything he wanted it to do and it wasn't just being a jerk saying like get rid of one line of thread and it made the thing so much better and like it's just one example but it just goes to show you like across a movie that that's how we were working for an entire movie on every single outfit that appeared in it and it's one to make it right and two because fincher's vision for it does actually make it better so it is in the best interest of the film so I wanted to transition to our main topic, uh, your work on uh, her in 2013. Uh, it's it takes place in such like a unique, unnamed, like futuristic world, and I I was wondering like what sort of direction did you get in in uh, it has such a unique fashion sense. So what sort of direction did you get, and what was like your inspiration and approach for all like the high pants and the tucked in shirts and. There's kind of three parts to answer that. The first part is um, Spike had spent more time, obviously, with the script than any of us had. So in his head, he had some ideas. And when we would have conversations like, like how far into the future is this? And we couldn't really, we didn't really want to give it a number, but it felt like it was something like two decades into the future, 20, 25 years into the future, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, Um, having a little bit of background in fashion, although fashion was never really my thing. Costumes were, and that was the big distinction for me. Um, uh, Generally, like every decade or so, there is a flip in fashion, you know, and it's why you can say like the 80s have like, you know, super wide leg pants and then 90s you get like skinny fit and whatever. And so generally like every 10 years, there's a reaction to whatever was coming before it. So we were figuring, let's jump ahead two reactions so what will be happening 20 years from now which is like it's a little bit hard to imagine but it's not just like thinking what's going to be the next fashion idea it's going to be what's going to be the one after that so that was one thing we had in our head right another part we had was trying to make sure that a vision of the future was representing uh something that we felt was going to happen and is happening which was like future films at, at the time anytime you showed the future it felt like the things that would happen was it would be really cold and the colors would be like black and silver and blue. And um, everything felt like it just like it became less personal. Whereas Spike's idea going into everything was that like in the future with the internet, you're going to be able to have any version of anything you want. So if you could have anything you want, you would want everything to be comfortable. Like you wouldn't wind up having like metallic fabrics and all these things like you'd wind up with like really organic stuff and color schemes would be stuff that's soothing like you know nice reds and yellows and oranges and things like that so a lot of that came out of those discussions and and we you know there's almost no blue in that entire movie um and that was a choice of Poita, the dp and also just based on the conversations that i was just telling you so that was part of how we arrived at that place um and then Another thing that we noticed was that like in future films, and this is like thinking about all those films from that time was like the way that you would show that it was the future by adding things like you'd have like that collarless collar and you'd have like 
epaulets on a thing or you'd have like patches on something mm-hmm. or you like I said you'd add like holograms or you'd add some kind of pattern into the metallic um, textures and for us we decided like it might be more interesting if instead of adding things we took things away so that when you looked at it you weren't like noticing new things that weren't part of contemporary clothing but you just had a sense that something was different because there was something that wasn't there. So we took denim away and we took belts away and we took ties away and we took hats away for the most part. And so um, started playing with those ideas and then just started thinking about like bringing clothes from different decades into it. And because um, Joaquin's character was named Theodore, there was like, something was we kept referencing uh theodore roosevelt and so something about like that era started a conversation that i i'm pretty sure this was originally in spike's head but it wound up with like trying to play with clothes from that era and so i started looking at clothes from that era but trying to find a way to update them and one thing i was noticing was that there's these high-waisted pants that like generally they're high-waisted and they're really big like there's there's a thing in fashion and the seventies explains it the best. The sixties versus seventies explains it, which is like your proportions are supposed to stay the same. So like, if you look at Kennedy, he has really thin lapels, a really thin tie and really thin pants legs. And then you look at the seventies and it's like wide bell bottoms, wide collars, wide ties. So like there was an idea that like everything is supposed to go with itself and we kind of decided like maybe we can mix up some of those ideas. So like take the high-waisted pants, but instead of them being like baggy pants, like Humphrey Bogart style, they could be like really slim fitted pants that makes somehow make more sense. So the combination of all those things sort of is how we landed uh, on those pants and some of the other designs in that film. You you brought up uh, Hoyt, uh, Hoyte van Hoytma, I think is how you pronounce it. Hoyte van, Hoyt, van Hoytma, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and I was wondering what kind of conversations you had with him, uh, if there's any specific stories you remember from that set, because he's one of my favorite cinematographers. Yeah, he's amazing. And also, um, you know, he, he had a really, he had big shoes to fill on that movie because Lance Accord had shot every film that Spike had done up until that point. And, uh, and Hoyta showed up. And again, like I said, we had this pretty tight knit family. So it's a, it's a tough thing to walk into, but like from day one, Hoyta was just in that family. His, he's just like, Mm -hmm. he's just the most amazing soul and incredible human being. Never mind how gifted he is as a cinematographer. He's just an incredible human being. And he like, he got us and he, we got him right away. And so he just was really in the mix. And um, the early conversations, he had lots of like photo reference books and things that he was playing with, trying to get inside Spike's head and figure out the look of this thing that, you know, that KK and I had been trying to figure out for a while as well on our own because KK was doing all this research on, on architects and meeting with all these architects, trying to figure out ideas that might be coming up and then trying to extrapolate from there and create whatever like the sets were going to be and you know and all that stuff that eventually led to us shooting the exteriors in shanghai to make that feel different than los angeles or something like that um and hoite came in with his reference and i I mentioned it before but one of his big things 
was uh, there will be no blue in this movie, that that is just not going to be part of this. And like that alone just kind of informed so many conversations. Like it, it just made us all start thinking differently about the sets and what those sets would be. And if it's not going to be blue, which is blue, such a dominant color, like in the world. And I mean, Navy, like it's just such an easy color to use. Then what will we replace it with? And like, for me, it led to uh, the, the, I guess it's sort of the iconic shirt in the film because it's on the poster, but there's like a, a red, uh, like a jewel red collarless shirt that Joaquin wears. And that shirt was, it was a color that we were playing with. We were really liking the ideas, like I mentioned, of sort of warmer tones. And that was a shirt that I was just wearing. And at the time, uh, I had been cutting, I'd just been taking any shirt like this and turning them inside to see what they look like without a collar and just wearing shirts like that. So um, I had done that with a band of outsider shirts, that exact red shirt. And then eventually I just decided I was just going to cut the collar off of it. So I cut the collar off of it and I was at a sitting with Joaquin, mostly to try and figure out the pants and how the high-waist pants would work. And Spike was like, he should wear your shirt. Just put him in your shirt. So we threw my shirt on him. And then, like, all of a sudden it was like, oh, fuck, I just gave Joaquin my shirt. Like, now that's going to be the shirt that he wears. And then, sure enough, like, that became the hero shirt for the movie. So actually your shirt he wore in the movie or just inspired by the color of your shirt? No, no, no. That's my shirt. It's back in my closet now. That's my shirt. Oh, my God. Your shirt is a movie star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so uh, talking about like the costume designers having to collaborate with DPs, is it mostly about like how the how your fashion choices are going to affect like the color and lighting or it? Yeah, I mean, it is um, it's different with every DP. Sometimes there's a lot of collaboration. Sometimes there's no collaboration, um, you know, like uh, like when we did where the wild things are. Uh, uh, you know, I had Max in a wolf suit and, you know, it, it, to, to the to the average person watching that movie, there's one wolf suit. But the reality is we shot in night. We shot by campfire. We shot in daytime and uh, we shot Max. We shot uh, stunt doubles, body doubles. Sometimes Spike was in the Max outfit just for like an arm out of just reaching in the frame. And there's probably like eight people that are in that outfit and then each one of them is shot in different lights. So by the time we were done creating that outfit, we had, I think it was 101 wolf suits that all were meant to just look like one wolf suit. And a lot of that is, was Lance's input on like, it needs to be more, it needs to be more of a darker tone when we're shooting in bright light. It needs to be more of a white, white when we're shooting by campfire. And so yeah, a lot of those conversations are influenced by lighting and, and the intent of how it's going to be used. So you spoke uh, earlier about how, you know, the shirt that Joaquin Phoenix wears in the movie. And I was wondering uh, about him specifically is is that was uh, what kind of input he had uh, on the characters, you know, what he wore and what if you had any conversations with him, what they were like. We did. And it's a great question. Um, it was probably like the third fitting and we were pretty far along in the process at that point. And, uh, and then Spike turned to Joaquin and said, you haven't really said one word the entire time while we've been trying on all these insane outfits. Like what's your feeling? Do you think it works? Does it feel comfortable? And he looked at us and he was like, listen, 
you guys are on a whole other level. I really have no idea what you're doing. I don't get it at all, but I have such trust in you guys that whatever you're doing is right. So I have, I literally have no opinion about this. I don't have an answer. Uh, it's fine. Like everything feels fine. I don't know what it means. I don't know why we're doing it, but I trust that you guys do. So let's go for it. <laughs> gave you carte blanche. Yeah. Th- that's an Oscar yeah. winner telling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have, have you ever had an experience of an actor that did give uh, a lot of input and where it was like helpful for your process? Yeah. I mean, I've had every version of it. Um, I've had actors that that come to fittings with pictures and reference and all kinds of stuff. Um, I've had actors, you know, a, a lot of actors know what they look good in. So that might be part of it is like, don't put me in this kind of thing, put me in this kind of thing. Um, and then it happens the other way around, like, uh, you know, on Zodiac, uh, I didn't there for for Robert for most characters there was so much reference for Robert Downey Jr's character there was almost no reference there was like one photo of Paul Avery but from what I knew about Paul Avery especially later in his life which is the later part of the film he kind of reminded me of my dad in a lot of ways so I just dug into my photo albums of my dad from all that period and I made colors xeroxes of all those and when I did my first video with Robert Downey Jr I showed him all those pictures and his Robert Downey Jr.'s dad and my dad actually knew each other. They worked together and they knew each other back in the day. So because of that, I had like a little bit of a relationship with Robert Downey. I'd never met him, but we had that in common. So he loved that idea. And he asked if he could take those photos with him. And I was like, sure. So he took them with him. And then I finally did a fitting with him and it was at his house. And uh, he's like, you want to get a cup of coffee? We can go in the kitchen. And I was like, sure. So we go in the kitchen and he had taken the pictures of my dad and he had blown them up to huge sizes and the entire kitchen would, they were taped up all over the kitchen. It was like a shrine to my dad. And so it was like, and then he hadn't realized that like he hadn't put it together that I was going to be walking into that room. And then when we were in there, he was like, Oh shit, I'm sorry. I should have taken this down. This is probably so fucking weird for you. And I was like, no, like I love, he's like, I just like, I'm absorbing the character and I just love your dad. (laughs) So there's every version of that collaboration. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're with your earliest credit being uh, being John Malkovich and that I mean, the whole premise being that there are many John Malkoviches and you also worked on um, a- a- Adaption, which also has um, uh, which also has like double people. And I was wondering of um, of Nicolas Cage. There are two Nicolas Cages. Um does there being two of a bunch of people, or does that change your job at all? Or of like who you're putting clothes on and, and having to do like split screen sort of thing? Uh, not on being John Malkovich because like Malkovich was his own character, really, you know? So like everybody was their own character. Uh, the the one that was interesting was on Adaptation where, where it was Nicolas Cage and a twin brother playing Nicolas Cage. And like we we wanted very much to like, not do that twin story costume wise the way it usually gets done where it's just like there's such different styles that you always know who you're looking at like we felt like they would have kind of similar styles they just might like one would be tucked in one wouldn't be tucked in and we would just rely on Nicolas Cage's acting 
to tell you which character you were with at the time. So that was an interesting thing of trying to figure out exactly how to pull that off without doing sort of the stereotypical twin stuff. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, you worked on Where the Wild Things Are, and we were wondering, dealing with the big monster costumes and like just working with CG elements, did that affect your job at all? Or was that mostly on set? It was practical, so whatever. Yeah. For for me, it was practical because the you know everything was practical except the faces were enhanced in CGI. But also, like I'm the smallest part of that particular part of the process. Like Henson Company made those outfits, and my friend Sonny uh, designed the drew out what they should look like. So my job on the creatures was to just oversee it and kind of art direct it and make sure that it was always staying in what you know uh mine sunny's and spike's vision was especially because we were working with the jim henson people who like were not really closely part of our family and so a lot of times i just had to interpret things for them like get spikes get spikes words out there and get spikes thoughts into those costumes so um i wasn't really as hands-on with those costumes i was just there to make sure it went the right direction mm-hmm. sure uh, so we looked at your website, and it seems like you're largely a commercial director of your own now. And we were wondering how you transitioned from costume designing into making your own work and what you're working on now. So, I mean, I wanted to be a director, like I said, from when I was a kid. And then Spike kidnapped me into costume design. And, you know, I always felt like I'll do this for a few years, and then eventually I'll I'll finally start directing. And it just got harder and harder to do as I became more and more successful. And like, I just couldn't stop it. And then uh, at some point, I guess it's about six years ago, I just decided like, if I don't make this change now, I'm never going to make this change. So I just told everybody I'm just not doing any more costume design and I'm just going to focus. Even if I don't direct anything for the next year, I'm taking a year away from costume. I'm going to try and direct and Fortunately, I had enough people supporting me and helping me out that uh, within that year, I was able to start doing some stuff, did a couple of music videos and a couple of commercials and started a career in it. And I always knew that when I went into it, that I would want to be doing comedy. It's, you know, it's my background. And like I said, my dad was a comic. My grandpa was a comic. My dad directed sitcoms. And like, that was my dream was always to do comedy. So um, again, the the goal was and still is to to do commercials, but really to eventually move into longer format comedy. And so um, I've been doing commercials now for about six years. And like, uh, you know, because each project is really its own project, you can really learn something new on every single job. So it's great opportunities to try out different things on commercials, whereas on a film, you know, You'll, you can learn a lot, but you're also learning sort of in one very specific path. So the idea was to do enough commercials that I just got better behind the camera and then eventually um, work out into a film. And so now I have a film that I've been developing for a little while that's just about ready to go out into the world and is something that I really badly want to direct and put out into the world. So did you write it also? Or- uh, a, a, a friend of mine and a producer of mine, a guy named Jed Harold, wrote the script uh, did a first pass of the script. And since then we've been writing it together. And is it comedy based? Yeah. It's a very, very dark comedy. And mm-hmm. are you in a place legally to give us a log line? 
I don't think I can really give you a log line. I'll just tell you that it's um, it's based on a book written in 1979. Uh, and it's a writer who never really wrote anything else except two books of historical fiction about Egypt. And for some reason, he wrote this very entertaining, wildly weird, dark comedy about a family um, that sort of tumbles down and goes out of control. And um, yeah, and that's sort of. Is it looking like it's set to go into production? Under uh, control? Not at all. We just have a we just have a script that we're really happy with right now. So in the yeah. next couple months, we'll start taking it around. That's exciting. That sounds awesome. Yeah. What would you say that your like directorial influences are uh, for your style? And has like, I mean, obviously it probably has, but like has working with you know some great people. Like, how has that influenced your style behind the camera? Uh, I mean, you know, I think my style is, it's very unique. My sense of humor is very unique and specific. Um, But having worked with, you know, with Spike, especially, uh, you know, with Fincher in the commercial world with people like Frederick Bond and, uh, and, and Tom Kuntz and Mike McGuire guys who are great comedy commercial directors and really have their own style. Um, the Pelorian brothers. There's so many people that I've seen like be able to tell comedy stories that also are visual, which often with comedy, it's like the, the least important. It's what you lose. It's what you lose. And to me, like having a visual background, I think it's, you know, it's something that for me is, it's not just a necessary, a necessity, but it's an asset because things look very specific and they look the way I want them to look. And, you know, they have a life that like you want to look at it as much as you want to laugh at it. So if anything, I would say that's my, that's the biggest part of my style. It's an interesting thing to look at because it's like Spike Jones is like funny, but he's serious. And then Fincher movies are like serious, but they're funny. And so I'm sure you're looking for some cross-section combination of those two ideologies. You know, my stuff is is a lot um, more on the nose, broad slapstick. Like, if if Spike stuff is funny, it like it's him just indulging it just a little bit. Like, he never mm-hmm. wants to throw you a bone. Where I want to throw you the bone and the dog. Like, I just want you to laugh <laughs> really hard, and and that's more important to me. Where for Spike, that's the sort of a secondary. He's glad it's funny, but that's not why he's making it. Mm-hmm. Well, Trent, do you think, do you want to ask the big final question? The big kahuna final question. What do you got? Uh, what's the last great film you saw? And it can be a rewatch or just something you want to, something you want to chit chat about for 90 seconds. Um, it's the last great film I saw. I just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark again. Oh, nice. oh, and, you, you've um, captured Trent's heart. Yeah, you have my attention. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, you know, I was watching, um, I was doing a commercial in London a couple months ago and uh, it, the beginning of it is a takeoff on Rares of the Lost Ark. And then it takes a weird turn and, and they come out of the tunnel and pop up out of a manhole and they're in a car dealership and it's a commercial for a car dealership. But sure. um, it led me to watching Rares of the Lost Ark and then also getting really deep into just like behind the scenes Steven Spielberg stuff, which is just mm-hmm. You can't get enough of that stuff. I, I, I'm sure. You, I'm sure you've heard about the uh, the cut that uh, Soderbergh did of Raiders of the Lost Ark with the Social Network score, and I it's black and white, that. and it's a silent film. It's fucking awesome. You did you watch it, it? Yeah. And where yeah. do you watch it? 
Uh, it, they say that it's still on Soderbergh's blog. All right. If you I'll, scroll, if you scroll down far, we, we can email you the link if you'd like. Yeah, we can that email you the link. Please do. So, are you excited for Indy Five? Um, I don't know. I'm a little terrified about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we both are. So, are you more? Uh, oh, we'll finish here. Are you more of a Last Crusade or Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of guy? No, Raiders for sure. I mean, I just love. You know, I love that old school kind of filmmaking and like, you know, even on uh, I, I, I just love that kind of storytelling and the simplicity of it. And like, you know, it's like all those Spielberg movies, E.T. and those movies and then like other movies like Goonies moving forward mm-hmm. or just like and then this one is going to sound like it, it it's completely arbitrary. But I swear on my life that it's exact same format and template. Coyote Ugly is one of my favorite movies ever made. And watch that movie and you'll see that beat for beat, that film has perfect story structure. And I am kind of really love story structure. So like, it almost doesn't matter what the movie content is. If it has that story structure, I really, really love it. Well, that, that that's great. Uh, Trent, you, uh, you want to bring us to our close? Yes, thank you uh, so much, Casey Storm, for coming on. We really appreciate your time. He's worked on all sorts of films, like being John Malkovich and Zodiac, and our film for today, Spike Jones is her. Thank you for coming on. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks again to... Uh, well, thanks for listening to Casey's our interview with Casey Storm, and thank you to Casey Storm for letting us interview you because you were a really swell guest. And um, Parth, you wanna you have any comment? Did you enjoy yourself? I had a good time. I liked all of his comments. I mean, you we alluded to it, but it's it was pretty freaking dope to realize that the the shirt that Joaquin Phoenix is wearing on the poster and throughout much of the film is actually just Casey Storm's shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this story with David Fincher and how, you know, particular and specific with detail he is, especially with that single thread coming out of that, mm. you know, to see just a little bit of the Zodiac Killer. thought that was pretty cool. Since Casey Storm is like friends with like Spike Jones, I feel like we're like getting within degrees of separation of like really famous people. Isn't that kind of nice? kind of are. Yeah. It's 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 an exciting time to be part of craft services. I know I'd hate to be any other podcast right now. Any yeah, any other podcast is kind of especially Team Deacons officially called out. I'll say it, fuck Team Deacons. <laughs> Hashtag fush, fuck Team Deacons. I know that you came out before us and that you have the esteemed cinematographer Roger Deacons, and that you're like generally on a production level better than us, you and that you have better da- guests. You know, you- you know, you have a better line. I won't say no. You don't have better guests. We have we have the best guests of any podcast. But, but you guys probably have like an editing an editing team, and you have the whole Deacons clan. And Roger Deacons, if you're hearing this, we'd love to have you on the show. But just please to get, do come on. Just to get our names out there, we have to call you out because our concepts are pretty similar. Yeah, and- I'm I'm gonna need Collider and the Hollywood Reporter and Deadline to all pick this up as you know podcast hosts say fuck Roger Deacons so that. You know, just get some traction going. Yeah, no, uh, I just, uh, like, read the Access Hollywood headlines in the morning. Everyone will be talking about this. Have 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 people's social medias blowing up. But, uh, Trent, speaking of social media, mm. what 
what do we this what is, do we need the listeners to do? This is the end of the episode where we ask you guys really nicely to I guess like follow us on Instagram or we also have a Twitter that Parth is the king of Parth the, t- the Twitter king. I am. Um, but I, we we collaborate on the Instagram and but more importantly, what you guys really need to do is you're gonna go on Apple Podcasts and you're gonna give us a five star review. Parth, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you should. You should go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review, leave a little, leave a little nice comment. You know, say that we're pretty cool. Say that I'm a better host. You know, the basics. Yeah, um, s- say that you're hashtag Team Craft Services over Team Deacons because uh, people will. People are about it. We're waging a war, people. So pick a side. Um, but yeah. So then next week we'll be out with our her discussion. Yep. Maybe we'll have a guest. Maybe. Maybe we won't have a guest. Who knows? We don't even know. That's yeah, we're, the funny we're still thing. A, we're still a little bit unsure. Yeah. That's why we put discussion guest TBA. It's because yeah. we don't know. We don't know what's going on. We're just having fun with it. Or maybe we have episodes prepped for the rest of the freaking year. Who knows? Well, I was just I was just about to allude um, to some of those episodes we were, you just mentioned. Tell me about them. Well, after our herd discussion comes out, maybe we have a slate of films for the month of October. Films. Relating to a particular holiday in October. <laughs> no, I see what you're saying. I, I kind of, I like how I started going into my Joker impression. Ah, ah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Joker. I mean, not that that's related to horror Ooh, month, but that's, maybe that's much past. That's maybe much, after horror month. Trent, Trent, you're you're you're. you're I know. Publicizing, no, no, no. you're publicizing things that are so far in in advance. I mean, we talked about John Lee. We talked about films he's worked on. I don't know. Think about it, guys. Anyways, connect the dots. But October slate month, huh? Think about that. Who knows? Yeah, I wonder what that could be. So that'll come out. Our our, our newest slate will be coming out after Three next films. week's episode. Six episodes. No bullshit. Craft Services doesn't acknowledge holidays. But every freaking Sunday, we're here. I think we've said everything we needed to say. Follow our social media. Give us a few likes. Give us a good review. Listen to our discussion out next week. And then, you know, check out our slate and then... You know, we've got exciting things, exciting guests coming up in the future. So Things are brewing. Yeah. So, all right, guys. We've made it this far. We've got some tricks up our sleeves. That's all we'll say. Much like the Joker. Okay. Ah. 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 Craft Services is a podcast. Ah. Fuck Team Deacons. Ah.